Gracious God and Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. This Lenten season, we have been looking at the intersection of food and faith. And it is a big intersection. Virtually every saving act of God is accompanied by a meal of some sort, food, a sacrifice, if you will. Last week we talked about the Passover meal. This week, we're looking at the sacrificial system from Leviticus, the first several chapters, which describes the various uh, sacrifices that God had ordained for the Israelites. And point number one that I want to make is that eating meat, for people in Jesus' day, eating meat was a religious event. By Jesus' time, much of the land in Israel was cultivated. There was not a lot of pasture land. Now that's very different from 2,000 years earlier. If you are familiar with the book of Genesis, Abraham was a pastoralist. He was wealthy, many flocks and herds. Meat was plentiful. It was all there on the hoof for the taking. But by Jesus' day, much of the land in Israel was under cultivation. Besides that, the rabbis had made a law. And the law was that anyone raising livestock must do it in a wilderness location. Because too many animals were bad for the environment, especially goats and sheep. They would eat the grass down until there was really nothing left. And so there weren't a lot of animals around. Therefore, meat was very expensive. For the people in Jesus' day, their meat consisted largely of kind of a fish sauce. They would not sit down to a meal of fried catfish like you and I might. For them, the fish they caught was for sale. They would eat a little bit in a sauce Form. They would dip their bread into it or pour it on the bread that they were eating. Along with vegetables and some fruit, that was basically their diet and a few nuts as well. Meat was a very rare thing. So eating meat was a religious event. It was something special. It was always associated with God, with religious life in Israel. I mentioned the Passover meal a moment ago. That was the one big meat-eating event of the Israelite religious year. Because there, in that event, every household would partake of a lamb, and they would eat the entire lamb. It would be roasted, it would be eaten before nightfall. So they really had a lot of meat on that one day. And the only other time they would eat meat would be during a sacrificial offering. And we're going to talk about those in just a second. There were two kinds of offerings in Israel. There were the voluntary offerings, 
And there were the mandatory offerings, the sin offerings. Those were mandated whenever there was an unintentional sin. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the voluntary offerings were foundational. And the very uh, most important of all burnt offerings, uh, or of the voluntary offerings, was the burnt offering. It was foundational for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was the most ancient of all offerings. It goes all the way back to the time of Abel. Abel offered a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering to God, pleasing to the Lord. Later on in Genesis, I believe it was chapter 9, Noah offers whole burnt offerings in thanksgiving to God after deliverance through the flood. Abraham did the same, offered up whole burnt offerings. This was done throughout uh, the patriarchal uh, period. So it was foundational in that sense, the most important sacrifice of all in that sense. But it was foundational for another reason, and it's this. When the tabernacle was completed and the altar of burnt offering was established in the temple courtyard, the very first offering every day would be a whole burnt offering, most likely a lamb, but it could be another animal as well. That was the first offering of the day. It was the foundation of all the offerings that would follow because on top of that offering would be the additional offerings made throughout the day. So it was kind of like an offering sandwich, so to speak. The burnt offering was always first, and this is how it worked. The offerer would bring an animal without blemish. He would lay his hand upon the head of the animal, and we're not sure what that meant. Some say it's a transference of guilt, but that happened on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would lay both hands upon the head of the goat. But the offerer would lay one hand on the head of this sacrificial animal, perhaps denoting its place as a substitute for him. He would place his hand on the head, then he would slit the throat of the animal. And the heart's still beating, it's pumping the blood out of the animal. Then the animal would be skinned, and it would be, its entire carcass would be placed on the altar of burnt offering, but not before the blood, which had been collected, would be sprinkled on the altar. That was to decontaminate the altar because of the presence of the worshiper. The presence of a sinful human being contaminates the holy things. And so the blood of that burnt offering would decontaminate the altar and make the worshiper then acceptable to stand in the presence of God. And the entire sacrifice went up in smoke. The entire sacrifice was incinerated and became an odor pleasing to the Lord. So that's the foundational sacrifice, the sacrifice of burnt offering. And it denoted complete dedication to God. You're offering the entire animal. It denotes complete dedication. And that points us to Jesus Christ, who completely dedicated himself to our salvation. He said, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Completely devoted to the Lord. 
Now, the next offering that would follow, often it would follow, would be the grain offering. And that would consist of unleavened cakes. It could be flour mixed with oil. It could be dough. Part of that would be incinerated on top of the burnt offering after the burnt offering was burned. Then you would place the grain offering on there. But most of the grain offering went to the priests. It was their food since they did not have an allotment of land in Israel. The Lord was their portion and they would live off of the offerings of the Israelite people. So they would get the lion's share of the grain offering. And that grain offering points to our Lord Jesus as well because he is the bread of life. He not only provides daily bread for us, but he is the living bread that, come down, that has come down from heaven that a man may eat and not die. So it all points to our Lord Jesus. The third offering would be the peace offering. And the peace offering was unique in this sense. That would be an animal, again, without blemish from the herd. But this offering could be eaten by the worshiper as well as the priest. It, for that reason, it was also known as the fellowship offering. So the throat would be slit, the blood would be sprinkled on the altar, again, to decontaminate the altar because you're in the presence of the Holy One the holy things must be decontaminated so that you can be acceptable to stand in the presence of God. And then the animal would be cut up, the hide would be stripped off, the animal would be cut up, some meat uh, would be uh, apportioned to the priest, some to the worshiper himself. And also that peace offering was accompanied by a grain offering, a bread offering as well. So they were all cooked on the altar uh, and it was really a barbecue. It was not total incineration. It was what we would call a barbecue. And the worshiper would then eat that food. That's the part of the entire sacrificial system that he could directly participate in, in terms of eating, in terms of feeding. And it's that peace offering that I think most closely resembles the Lord's Supper. Because there you partake of the flesh and you partake of the bread and this is really important as well. Since the altar is holy to the Lord, whatever comes into contact with the altar becomes holy. And so when the offering is placed upon the altar, that food becomes holy. And the people partake of God's holiness by partaking of that food. The Bible never defines what holiness is but it is an attribute of God that keeps him and us apart. But God desires to share his holiness with us. And so the sacrificial system, and particularly the peace offering, is one way in which he does that. He shares his holiness with us through the holy food. And so we're able to fellowship with him, we're able to stand in his presence and to know him. So this is all grace on the part of God. So those are the three voluntary offerings. Then there are the mandatory offerings, the sin offering and the guilt offering. The sin offering, its purpose was to proclaim forgiveness to the worshiper. And this would be again, an animal without spot from the herd. Again, the throat is slit, the blood is sprinkled to decontaminate the altar. And this was an offering for unintentional sins much as the guilt offering 
which I'll describe in just a moment, that was for unintentional sins. There was no sacrifice for intentional sins in the sacrificial system, only unintentional ones. There was no forgiveness for criminality. The Bible calls this sinning with a high hand, a premeditated act of criminality. There was only the judgment of the law. There was only either banishment from the people of God or the death penalty. And the two were often very similar. If you were banished from the people of God, that's almost as good as the death penalty. But the consequences were severe. And the assumption was, since God delivered you from Egypt, you would not sin with a high hand. You would not sin intentionally. But when you sinned, it was through weakness. It was unintentional. And God provided forgiveness for that. And so the sin offering is uh, referred to in our third reading from Hebrews 13, where we read a moment ago, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent or the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And so the writer of Hebrews makes this analogy that just as the sin offering would be burned not on the altar of burnt offering, its blood would be sprinkled there, but it would be burned outside the camp of Israel. So our Lord Jesus was crucified outside the gate of the holy city of Jerusalem, paralleling then the sin offering, suggesting that he is indeed our sin offering. And then the second mandatory offering was the guilt offering. That's reparation, recompense for unintentional sins. In other words, when you sin against God, you do damage to him in some way. If it's nothing more than damage to his reputation, reparation or recompense is required. And so that's what the guilt offering was all about. And that's referred to in Isaiah 53, verse 10, which we did not read this evening, but I'll just quote that to you. Though the Lord makes his life, meaning the Messiah, a guilt offering, yet he will see his offspring and prolong his days. So he will die as a reparation offering, recompense to God for our guilt, for all of our sin, but he will not remain dead. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. That is a reference to the resurrection of our Lord. Now in the second reading for tonight, I mentioned a few moments ago from Hebrews 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that's true. Because what that blood did, the blood of the animal sacrifices, it cleansed you to this degree that you could stand in the presence of the earthly tabernacle. You could stand in that place where God chose to reveal his name on earth. And that's all it could do, no more than that. It could not cleanse the conscience. So the Old Testament offerings cleansed us outwardly for access to the earthly sanctuary, period. That's the most it could do. It could not cleanse you before God in heaven. It could not do that. Only the blood of the true guilt offering, the true sin offering, the true peace offering, the true burnt offering, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ could do that. Christ's self-offering 
cleanses us inwardly. It cleanses the heart. It cleanses the conscience for access to the heavenly sanctuary. And this is what we mean in Hebrews 10, read just a moment ago, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's a reference to heaven, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Through his flesh, we have access to God in heaven. And this is why we say, whenever we gather in his name, two or more gather, we say Jesus is in the presence of this gathering, as he said in Matthew 18. We believe that wherever Jesus is, heaven opens, and we participate in the life of heaven. You know, when our Lord was born, heaven opened and the angels sang for joy. When he stood in the river Jordan and was baptized, again, heaven opened because God the Son was identifying with sinful people like you and me. That's the good news of Christ's sacrifice. Only Christ can cleanse you so that even now, when we gather in his name, when we gather around word and sacrament, heaven opens and we have access to the throne of God itself, which our Old Testament forefathers did not have access to. They had access to the earthly sanctuary, period. No more than that. We have access to heaven itself. And you can read more about this in Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer of Hebrews says this, you have not come to Mount Sinai, You've not come to the mountain that smokes and that belches fire, that trembles, that's gloomy and threatening. No, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now he's talking here about Christian worship. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the assembly of the firstborn, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect. That's heaven itself. And that's what the blood of Jesus Christ gives us access to. Whenever we gather around our Lord in word and sacrament, heaven opens and we have access to God the Father through the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see, it's through the flesh of his Son that God bridges the distance between heaven and earth. God overcomes what we never could. That is the good news for this evening. That's the good news of the sacrificial system and the one to whom it all pointed, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now next week in our time together, we'll be talking about the Jewish dietary laws, the kosher foods, and how they point to our Lord and Savior Jesus as well. There's always this intersection between faith and food in the Holy Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.